Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is August 8th, 2012, and my guest is Lee Ohanian, professor of economics at UCLA. Lee, welcome to Econ Talk. Thanks, Russ. So we're going to talk about the state of the economy, and we're going to draw on a paper you wrote in 2010 in the Journal of Economic Perspectives, and that was the economic crisis from a neoclassical perspective. We'll put a link up to that. And we're also going to, I hope, get to some current work you're doing on the housing market and the relationship between unemployment and the foreclosure uh, issue. And along the way, I suspect we'll end up dipping into your work on the Great Depression as well. I want to start by asking you, what is different about this recession uh, relative to previous post-war recessions in the United States? What's strikingly different? Okay, yeah, I mean, there's, there's several features of this particular episode um, that contrast sharply. Um, you know, changes both in terms of the downturn up to the trough and then also about the recovery. So in terms of the downturn, it's a very severe recession, you know, kind of comparable to the 81-82 recession in which unemployment went up to nearly 11%. Um, you know, what's really different about this recession compared to 81-82 or other severe recessions such as those in the 70s is that there's no really, there's really no productivity decline. So typically in U.S. business cycles, productivity, measured either as total factor productivity or labor productivity, output T- per hour. Output per hour. Yeah, either output per hour or output per worker. Typically, productivity falls significantly during substantial recessions, such as those in the 70s and the 81-82 recession. In this recession, productivity didn't fall. All the drop in output was accounted for by a drop in labor input or, or employment. So that's, <clears throat> that's unprecedented in terms of U.S. recessions. That also is unprecedented when you compare that to the Great Recession in other countries. Canada, UK, France, Germany, Italy, all of those countries had severe recessions as well. Larger, I think, in your data, as you show in the paper, in uh, in GDP terms, right? A little bit larger, yeah. A little bit larger. Uh, the U.S. was down maybe around, around 7% relative to a usual 2% growth trend, and those other countries were down between maybe 7 to 9%. Right. Those countries, the output drop was, comb- was uh, accounted for by both a large drop in productivity and relatively small drop in employment. In the U.S., it was all about employment. So the Great Recession in the U.S. is different because it was all about employment. That's very, that's very different relative to other U.S. business cycles, and it's very different relative to the Great Recession in other advanced countries. Before we talk about what makes this one different, let's talk about what, was the, what makes all those other ones the same. If we looked at post-war recessions in the United States where output per hour or output per purse per worker uh, declined as part of the GDP decline. Why would that happen? What's going on typically in those recessions? And then let's talk about maybe why it didn't happen with this one. What's going on there? What, I mean, people didn't forget stuff. So I think sure. people, when they hear, oh, productivity's lower, they think, well, people weren't as productive. Would they yeah. forget how yeah. to work the machines? What, what is that? Right. What are the data capturing as best as we can tell 
in those so-called typical recessions. Right. So, so the 70s recession, the 81, 82 recession, recessions of the 50s and 60s where productivity declined a lot in the U.S., that was really the empirical feature that motivated Kidlin and Prescott to write, you know, to sort of start the real business cycle literature, um, which was part of the reason that Kidlin and Prescott both received the Nobel Prize in 2004. Um, so what's kind of compelling uh, in an intellectual way about that real business cycle research program is that, um, you know, there's still not a canonical explanation for why productivity declines during recessions. There's a lot of theories on the table, but there's certainly no accepted, there's no accepted explanation for that. Um, you know, some theories are recessions are periods of uh, fundamental changes in business lines and products and the way organizations operate themselves. Um, and this leads to temporary changes in output per worker. Um, another theory is that monetary policy or financial remediation doesn't work quite as efficiently as it typically does, and this impedes the ability to allocate resources to the most productive organizations. So those are two, those are two theories around the table, but we're very, very far from a, from a, a well-accepted explanation for, for cyclical changes in productivity. So we don't have a good explanation, I suppose, then, of why this one's not... The way it is, uh, no, or different. No, no. This this recession at some level. Um, uh, so Prescott will argue that current that the standard measures of productivity, which is say GDP divided by the number of workers, is flawed because intangible investment uh, is not well measured in the GDP accounts. And intangible investment, um, you know, the type of intellectual capital done at, you know, uh, high R&D firms. You know, we're sitting here in Stanford, so you've got, you know, Yahoo and Google and a bunch of uh, IT companies down the road. Uh, that Those types of intellectual uh, or intangible investments fall a lot, and that's not well captured. But um, So when, th- when times are good, uh, we sit around and get smarter, chatting with each other in informal and non-measurable ways. And when there's a recession, when times are bad... Uh, people uh, hunker down and, and don't do as much of that stuff. Is that that's the claim? Yeah, <laughs> and and there's, um, I mean, what Prescott will point to is the idea that you look at um, you look at the, you know, the market value of organizations on um, the stock market, and the value of the physical capital stock, particularly for um, fast growing companies that do a lot of R and D. That physical capital can only count for a tiny fraction of the market value. And therefore, he'll conclude the value of intangible capital is accounting for the rest, and we see large declines in the value of intangible capital during downturns. So apparently that's what he'll point to. And the U.S. economy today, more knowledge-based, less tangible generally, so therefore it's possible that this would... Be yeah. confounding. That's not this measurement problem is confounding what we're observing. Yeah, I mean it's uh, the very nature of the word intangible makes it hard to get you know, <laughs> hard to get your arms around. But um, I think there's some good reasons that that might be playing a role. Um, certainly, it's very hard to quantify the the, the relative effect of that. But dark um, matter in economics. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, now, one of the things that's that's striking uh, a striking chart in your paper. Uh, it just looks at per capita hours worked in the United States over time. And uh, two things are striking about it. The first is the one you focus on, which is 
the drop in during this recession is enormous. It, it's it's huge. If I um, we've got the paper here in front of us, we're doing this uh, podcast face to face. So in um, between the peak of roughly two thousand seven, when there was when the excuse me, when, yeah when the recession starts to the drop, and this paper was written in two thousand ten. So you yes, go right. up through to middle of two thousand eight, just over that very short period. It drops from about three hundred and sixty something hours. Is this per year? This is um, per capita. This is per capita. So it's per population, and, uh, it's not per worker. It's right. right. This is per this is per per adult population. Okay, per adult. So the working age population. So three three sixty eight say to three thirty. Uh, three thirty-five. It's a it's a ten percent, maybe more. It's close to yeah, around a ten percent drop. Yeah, it, it's huge. But the other thing that struck me about it uh, is that when I'm looking at these data, between the series starts in 1956, between 1956 and 1980, it it bounces around. It, it goes up in good times, goes down during recessions when people are being laid off, obviously, and we don't know whether that hours work per capita are low because people don't want to work or can't work, can't find work. But one thing that's striking about it is between the recovery from the 81 recession, so around 83 to uh, 2000, right before the 2001 recession. So that's about a 17-year period, often right. called the Great Moderation. Uh, during that period, uh, hours work appeared, I'm looking, guessing off the vertical axis, but they go about from about 315 to about 380 yeah. Which is a 20% increase in per capita hours work. So that's obviously a combination of increased labor force participation, more hours worked per person who is working, a low unemployment rate. Everything is just humming along, but that growth is huge. Yeah. That's a huge part of the expansion in uh, economic activity over that period. So suggesting it's not so much. Some of it wasn't just productivity, it's just more resources put into the economy. The 80s were, I mean, and I think... And 90s. Yeah, the 80s and 90s, I th- probably when economic historians, you know, 50 years from now, look back on the 20th century, the 80s and 90s will be called, you know, the golden age of economic performance in the U.S. Um, so we had a severe recession, 81, 82, um, you know, kind of comparable, roughly comparable to what we experienced in 08 and 09. But then in contrast to today where we've had literally no recovering jobs. I mean, today, Mediocre employment, to, uh, employment relative to the working age population is lower now than at the height of the financial crisis in the fall of 08. is higher now than at the NBR-defined trough of the recession in June of 09. In 81, wait, 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 so, say that again. So employment today. It, employment per rate uh, is lower uh, today. You said high. Yeah, I think you misspoke. Uh, I'm sorry. So employment today relative to the working age population is lower now than it was at the NBR-defined 2009 June trough, and it's lower today than it was compared to the, finan- the yeah. height of the financial crisis when you know, the stock market was falling 20% and everybody thought the world was coming to an end. So the world focuses on unemployment which is still quite high, 8.3 in the, last da- in the last data. But the, an, in many ways, a more reliable estimate is, is people working because it's yeah. not, it's, there aren't as many measurement problems. There, there are other issues, of course. Exactly, exactly. And you compare today's labor market with what happened in 81, 82, there's just a remarkable takeoff. Yeah. A remarkable takeoff in employment, a remarkable decline in unemployment, 
There's terrific economic growth that essentially was, with the exception of the 91-92 recession. Which was mild. What, which was mild, um, you know, continued until um, a fairly mild recession in 2000-2001. Yeah. And, you know, what concerns me somewhat, um, one can look at the comparison between the 80s and 90s versus the last decade in a couple of different ways. And the way you look at that really colors your vision for sort of the future performance of the U.S. economy and and really living standards. One is that we are in a slump now that um, we can debate about what should be done to correct that slump and get back on track. Another vision is very, very different, which is before the 08-09 recession, so 02 through 07, which came out of that mild recession we just talked about, we didn't have economic performance during those, quote, expansion years, you know, nearly as good as we had in the 80s and in the 90s. Right. Um, so job creation, business startups, and in particular, what I'd like to look at is job creation at small, fast-growing firms. Um, I mean, we know that GM is not going to be the big jobs creator. Uh, yeah. Unless somehow, unless somehow China falls in love with GM products, maybe they right. will, and, and yeah. hopefully they yes. will. Yeah. Or GM discovers some new technology that we don't know about. Or, you know. Yeah, but, but it's not the Chevy Volt, as far it, as we can tell. Uh, <laughs> it's not the Chevy but. Volt, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, but typically those big companies are not the big job creators. Uh, the big job creators are those small companies that then, that then take off. Job creation at those small startups is way, way down. So when I look today, yeah, today not, not just today, but if you look at 02, 03, 04 through 07, it's not nearly as vibrant an economy during those expansion years as it was during the 80s and the 90s. And um, you know, when I look at that data from a longer-run perspective, I'm much more concerned about the future of the U.S. economy than simply saying, you know, we still haven't quite gotten it right from the most recent recession. And you're you know, saying we, that I assume you're saying that because it suggests there's some structural issues that that this uh, recession might be. Masking that it's not just the recession. There's other stuff going on that's that's making things not so. Yeah, good. I mean, you know, earlier you asked me about what was really different about our current episode, and the recovery now really, really jumps out. Um, so you asked me about this paper I wrote for the JEP a couple of years ago. Um, so it was a really interesting project. So, so Chad Jones, the editor of the JEP, uh, asked me. It's the Journal of Economic Perspective. Journal of Economic Perspective asked me if I if I'd be willing to write something and. Um, you know, I kind of specialize in economic crises, so I said, sure, this sounds fun. So there's a symposium that Jay in, uh, in economic perspectives, um, Bob Hall, Mike Woodford, uh, Ricardo Caballero, and I think David Lapson were the other authors of papers. And they're, you know, they're all very, very different. Um, yeah, no doubt. You know, for listeners, they're, uh, all, of them are, all of them are really interesting reads. But when I wrote that, um, what, the conclusion I reached was it's not so much about a financial crisis. It's more about labor market issues, or if you want to think about the financial crisis, it's why does that impact the labor market so much? And Which I wrote that. obvious. Yeah, and I wrote that about two years ago, and the labor market looks the same today or perhaps even worse than when I wrote this first two years ago, which is really, really disturbing. So it's really unprecedented to have, you know, literally no return to normal employment level. I mean, as I mentioned Employment of population today is lower than it was in June 2009 when the NPR defined the trough. So you say... That's the start of the recovery. Uh, the start of the recovery, yeah. Especially. So 
you look at that performance, and that's not only abysmal, but it's unprecedented. Um, I know we'll talk about the Great Depression uh, a bit later, but even the Great Depression recovery, you had at least some job recovery. In this one, you're really not seeing any at all. So the other, now, there's a bunch of things to talk about, but one is uh, we never really talked about this explosion and and, uh, the reasons for this explosion in labor market activity post-81, 82 recession. And I assume, I'm not very familiar with, that's a play way of saying I'm unfamiliar. (laughs) I'm not very familiar. I'm unfamiliar with with, um, uh, Prescott and Kidlin's work other than to know that they put a lot of stock in marginal tax rates falling or rising. So they explain large differences between Europe and and I know Prescott explains large differences between Europe and the United States working hours, not because the French like siesta long t- uh, times in cafes uh, sipping wine, but because they have a different return and incentive from working because they have higher marginal tax rates. Is that the standard story for this long secular rise between, say, 83 and 2000 and hours work per capita, that, that it was a period of time in the United States, at least in the first part, when marginal tax rates were falling? I, What's going on there? Yeah, yeah. No, that's a uh, great question. we not know? Great question. Um, you know, so, so you mentioned the, the research that Prescott did about tax rates. So I did some research on that with uh, Richard Rogerson at Princeton and Andrea Raffo, um, former UCLA PhD student who's now an economist at the Federal Reserve Board. And what we did was um, we kind of we expanded Prescott's idea um, substantially, both over time and across countries. So we looked at how much can changes or differences in marginal tax rates that affect individuals' time allocation decision. So essentially, you know, you just talked about the incentive to work. So the incentive to work depends upon the return to working relative to the value of one's time in non-market activities. Okay. And there's enormous dispersion in those tax in the tax rates that affect that return to work across countries. And we have pretty good data from the OECD. And what we found was uh, was striking. So in the 1950s and 60s, hours worked, uh, total hours worked in a country relative to the working age population. So that's kind of the standard measure that, that a lot of economists use, was higher in Germany and France and some of the other Western, Northern European countries relative to the U.S., it's now on average about 20 or 25% below what the U.S. level of work is. Um, and we found that a big chunk of that could be counted for differences in marginal tax rates. And in particular, you look at countries like Germany, France, um, uh, some of the northern European countries, and you sort, you know, you see lockstep, you know, negative lockstep movements with higher marginal tax rates, Large drops in hours worked, and um, what? Can well, I, show, I just want to put a footnote to that. Sure. Large drops in hours worked in uh, in uh, taxable activities. It, it's exactly. not necessarily true that people are sitting around uh, in the cafes when they're marginal taxes. A lot of them are doing what we call uh, uncovered work or uh, work in the in the black market or sure, sure, no, absolutely cash. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. There's um yeah, there's non reported transactions and there's probably more, you know, what 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 economists call home production. Yeah. Some of those countries. We call it home production, but a lot of times it's it, it's work. Uh, it could be you're fixing your own house instead of working and hiring someone to do it, but it also yeah. is sometimes you're paying your neighbor to do it and you're giving him 
something in return that isn't that's that's not taxable. Right. No. Absolutely. You're painting his house and he's paving your driveway. A- a- absolutely. Absolutely. Farther, you, uh, so just as a sidebar, um, I visited the um, the Swedish Central Bank a few times, and I remember having lunch with one of their economists, and he said, "Do you know why we don't have um, home painting industry in Sweden?" I said. Um, you, I said, what? there's no, no, no. <laughs> How do you respond he, to that? Yeah. And he said, he said, um, one of my colleagues estimated how much um, I would have to earn in order to pay a painter one dollar after taxes. So marginal tax rates and so so you know the the the, the Reader's Digest version is marginal tax rates are so high that one would have to earn something like I don't know like eighteen you know a person would have to earn about eighteen or nineteen dollars. If their painter was to receive one dollar after taxes, so that's going to be you know, so the the homeowner is going to be taxed once, and then the home painter is going to be taxed another time. It says we all paint our own houses because it would just be it's not worth you know, it, just, yeah. just just be way too expensive. So yeah, so so your point about um, market recorded activity is is absolutely correct. That is absolutely correct. I, I mentioned that just because I, I think the our ability to precisely estimate. Traditional labor supply elasticities—that is, how much people respond to incentives—and I think armchair theorizing. When you think about how much you'd respond, it's it's not always it's not always obvious to me the effects as large as some claim. Uh, but when you include this kind of effect, especially at very high rates, I think you get, start to get large responses. Right. What convinced us. Um that there's significant merit in this particular theory. Um, we're really kind of two pieces that come out in that study, which um, it was published, I believe, in the Journal of Monetary Economics in 2006. One is that some of the European countries did some reforms. So in the late 80s and early 90s, some countries reduced marginal tax rates, not not to levels commensurate with the U.S., but they did reduce them you know, fairly significantly. And what you then see is you start seeing increases in market hours of work in those countries where you do see the reforms. The second is that we fit a number of regressions um, of trying to account for how much taxes could account for this factor compared to a host of other labor market indicators that economists often point to as depressing European hours of work, such as the level of unionization, the extent to which it's centralized, um, employment protection legislation. And what was pretty striking is that the R-square in the simple regression that includes only the tax factor is almost the same if you add in any one or two or the entire kitchen sink of all those other variables. The coefficient doesn't change in terms of magnitude, and the T-statistic doesn't change as well. So the R-square is the... uh Proportion of the variation explained with just one variable, and the T statistic is how significant it is. Yeah, no, sorry about the, sorry about the jargon. of being significant. Yeah, I got excited there and lapsed right. back into. That's okay. Into <laughs> That's okay. Um, now, but yeah, so so in terms of the '80s, I do think that was a very very important factor. Um, there were large there were large changes in, in taxes in the U.S. in the '80s, and I do think that was an important factor in what you might call the U.S. economic renaissance from a pretty abysmal decade of the 70s. It was also the case that that was sort of the birth time or roughly when information technology really started to take off. Um, it was the 1980s. And then you also mentioned the 1990s, and then, you know, then we, we get the Internet boom, 
and venture capital funding, um, you know, some of the, you know, some of the incredibly successful companies that are sitting around here at Stanford. Uh, so I think those two factors played an important role in the 80s and the 90s. Of course, ours were per capita rose pretty significantly in the 90s as well as the 80s, and we raised taxes at the beginning of that period, I think, get in the middle. So there got to be other things going on there. Uh, now, the other thing, before I want to come back to the labor market again, but before I do, I just want to hear you talk about one other factor that struck me as dramatic looking at your summary of this particular recession, which is business investment. The decrease in business investment in this recession relative to past recessions is quite large. Yep. Is, is that correct? Yes. Any thoughts on that? Um, and it hasn't recovered very well, is my impression. And, um, no, it hasn't. Um, it hasn't recovered that much. And this is a little bit like the 1930s. Right. And I know we'll get that to that in a few minutes. Yeah. But one parallel is investment during the 30s was... Uh, even during the recovery, was still fifty or sixty percent below trend. I mean, just remarkable. In the thirties. In the nineteen thirties. Here, we're nowhere close to that. But again, we're nowhere back close to trend. Um, so, what's interesting about today's economy, in terms of the corporate sector, in terms of what they're doing with investment of plant and equipment, and with the decisions they're making towards hiring new workers, is that. Those companies, their cash positions, their liquid asset positions are at least back to where they were before the financial crisis. And a lot of profits, profits are high, have a lot of cash on hand, a lot of successful companies are sitting on money, not doing anything with it. They have, you know, they have tons of cash. Um, and, and not only the, not, not only the non-financial sector, but, um, financial sector profits, which, of course, you know, were, which were negative, uh, at the height of the financial crisis, those are back to where they were before, right. before you know, partially because, you know, your tax dollars, my yeah, tax it's dollars it's like went to we subsidize. Made a, we made our contribution. We made, we made our contribution. And we're waiting, see them back on their feet. We're waiting for those dividends. Yeah, I'm shocked. <laughs> <laughs> As might. they say, don't hold your breath. Yeah. Uh, um, so, 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 so why is that? You know, this is, a, again, a big puzzle. Um, we, why aren't businesses investing more? They've got, they've got the wherewithal. They have cash. Um, they have plenty of money. You know, some people have suggested, well, they've run out of good things to do with the money. I find that hard to believe. Uh, <laughs> yeah, they have yeah. in some dimension, right? They, they're not using it. Is That's, that because they can't think of anything? I, I tend to be sympathetic to that they're anxious about the future. They're sit, waiting on the sidelines. Yeah. To see what's going to so, happen? So the statement that there's, um, they've run out of things to do with, with their cash. And some sense, that's the tautology from the right. standpoint that bad yeah. times, <clears throat> bad times are always times by definition where there's not a lot of good investment opportunities. Yeah, that's um, true. So then the question is, why yeah, are there bad times? Yeah. And I think there's probably, in my in my in my view, there's sort of two um, two theories. Hold that thought. Okay. okay. I want to okay. that in one second. Okay. That's what I want to turn to next is those two theories. Okay. But before you do. <laughs> okay. I want to ask you one other thing about the labor market that sure. that struck me. Uh, in our, we had a conversation yesterday before this interview. Uh, something I've noticed as well, which is in every recession, uh, higher educated people are hit less hard than lower educated people. It's pretty dramatic in this recession, though. Uh, among college educated workers, unemployment, it's higher than it was in, it, in the best yeah. of times, in 06, say. But for low skilled people, low educated people, people with a high school degree or, or who didn't finish high school, it's devastatingly bad. Uh, which is why, again, we're, we're, we're doing this interview in, in Stanford, California, Stanford campus. 
you can walk a quarter of a mile from here to the Stanford Mall, which is on El Camino at, at the intersection of Palo Alto and Menlo Park, and you'd think you were in uh, the flushest economic times ever. This area, yeah. which is high education, uh, has tremendous economic uh, health right now. Uh, I live uh, in Washington, D.C. area when I'm not here in the rest of the year, and it, of course, its main act main industry is government. It looks flush and normal. And of course, it's a very high education area, the nation's capital. Places that have lower education have struggled terribly and are doing much, much worse than the national average. What do we know about that? What's going on there? I mean, I think you you hit the nail on the head. And part of the solution to you know, long-run visions of the U.S. economy is is dealing with the fact that Highly educated people, they have, on average, remarkably good-looking futures, and those with low levels of education, um, I mean, I hate to say the word, are doomed, but uh, I think a lot of them are. Um, but you hit the nail on the head with that. So, uh, you know, one can obtain, um, you know, data on unemployment rates um, by age, by education level, by various types of demographic and socioeconomic factors. And the and the the data just jump out at you. So you mentioned unemployment rates among those with, um, say, college completion or advanced degree. It's around five yeah, percent unemployment, 4 point something, um, yeah. and uh, maybe up from two percent. But yeah, so you, it's double, but it's from very small. It's from a very very number. small base. Yeah, it's from a very small base. And when you look at those individuals with the lowest levels of educational completion, so those who haven't finished high school. It's a disaster because their labor force participation rate is um, is, only, is is about you know twenty percentage points lower than it is for highly educated people. So their labor force participation rate is somewhere around sixty eight, sixty seven percent. So not that many compared to other groups are working uh, or looking for a job. And those who are in the labor force, their employment rate is 15, 18, might be even as high as 20% at some point with the last couple of years. Um, and those who are working have wage rates that are um, incredibly low. So, um, you know, I looked at some data about the median wage of, uh, well, the wage of the median unemployed person. This is the median unemployed person. And in $2,005, it's somewhere, their previous wage is somewhere around $13 per hour. Um, before you're saying before the, before, before they were unemployed before they were unemployed um, now we know from a lot of research uh, some of it which goes back to 20 years um, by guys Jacobson uh, Lalonde and Sullivan which was a 1993 American Economic Review paper and then very very recent work uh, by Steve Davis at Chicago and my colleague Tilvon Wachter that individuals who suffer job loss during a period of severe recession take enormous wage cuts when they ultimately do find a new job. So you're somebody earning $13 an hour, um, and the fact that on average you're going to take a big wage cut, a lot of those people are bumping up against minimum wage legislation. Which is why also that there, I mean, we had a previous interview with David Otter out of uh, MIT on the disability uh, growth and disability roles, tremendous yeah, it's growth. Huge. Yeah, huge. Which su- is some of those folks. It's uh, huge. They're disabled in, uh, not in the way we traditionally think of disabled. They're they're struggling to find work. They find a doctor who will say that they've got something that makes it hard for them. Uh, Absolutely. Absolutely. So, um, so when you sort of say, well, why is it different now compared to certain in the past, um, I mean, the theory that I think 
has some merit for this is um, the fact that um, highly educated people um, can make very productive use of new, cheap, sophisticated capital equipment such as information technology. So you give a college graduate... um, you know, fax machines and cell phones and personal computers with advanced software, it makes them incredibly productive. A lot of those machines and technologies are taking the place of, of workers with low... Yeah. I mean, my favorite, my favorite story for this is um, you look at, say, the ports of New York and New Jersey. So um, in 1950, I think about roughly you know, 10,000 guys... Longshoremen, you know, big, strong guys, guys with strong backs work there. Um, they'd, you know, pick up a box and put it on a ship um, and, you know, take a box and take a box off the ship. So that was, that was the technology for offloading, yeah. <laughs> offloading yeah. international Simple. commerce. Today, no um, person touches anything. Today, tra- except who operates the, 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 the crane, yeah, the crane yeah, yeah. So today, um, Forklift. I think about maybe, under a thousand people, so there's been a drop of a factor of ten drop uh, in yeah. employment. Um, they're all college grads operating, you know, multi-million dollar. I mean, you know, you drive past any port and you see these remarkable cranes. They're picking up these large containers. Yeah. And um, those union guys, um, you know, the six one, two hundred fifty pound guys that could pick up anything, they're not around anymore. That job is, is that they so unskilled labor moving. lost that job to capital yeah. to capital goods. And that guy's moving a piano uh, for his. Neighbor in a moving or a moving company, and it doesn't pay what it used to pay. It doesn't pay nearly what it used to yeah. pay. Um, so this process of cheaper, better capital competing with low skilled labor has been going on for a long time now. Well, so that, you know, we're off the what we're talking about, but that's okay because I think it's very interesting. I mean, I think normally in economics we say, well, that's creative destruction. We yeah. find a more effective way to unload those ships. That way, it's cheaper to unload the ships. That way, there are more ships. And the things that come off the ships don't have to be as expensive. Yeah. And resources are freed up elsewhere in the economy. And that's usually a glorious thing for the standard of living and even for the average person. I think the challenge is uh, for some of those low-skilled people, they're not tooled up to take advantage of the new opportunities. That's exactly right. They're not, a lot of those people are not competitive in today's labor market. And so the part I think about more than, than what you're saying, though, is is, is sectoral-specific. So... I look at construction and manufacturing. You're t- really talking about manufacturing to a large extent. There's a long trend. It's 60, 70 years old and probably longer, where machines have replaced workers. The number of workers necessary to build a car is a fraction of what it is. So GM yep. is even if GM were thriving, it wouldn't have 750,000 yep. employees, and it just doesn't need the number of people it used to have. That's true across all kinds of manufacturing. But that, that trend started in probably 1945, and it just keeps going, and... We did fine as an economy, and the average person did fine, and the low-skill worker did fine. New opportunities opened up elsewhere to do other activities uh, that now were done by machines. But in construction, we had this massive uh, boom, I, I artificially stimulated, I believe, by government housing policy. And as a result, in certain areas where uh, it was easy to expand, Nevada, so-called sand states, Nevada, Florida, Arizona, sure. parts of California— Huge increases in the number of workers, and those jobs have not come back. I mean, not come back for five years more. And those workers, you know, who were laying drywall and building houses, they're not working on the stimulus package highway thing because they don't know how to drive those machines. People think they're going to somehow be 
stimulated by this. They're not. And uh, that housing, that sector alone is a huge chunk of low-skill unemployment, it seems to me. Yeah. So yeah. it's not maybe as bleak as you think. It's still bleak, but it, the, there's the, the, the sickness of the housing market, which we're going to get to also in a little bit, uh, has made it harder for this recovery to look like other recoveries and made it harder for those people who were drawn into those sectors and now can't find anything else or are waiting. Coming back, they want to, as a carpenter, they want to, they want to make that whatever it was per hour job and it ain't yeah. coming back for a while, but they're sitting there waiting. And, uh, yeah, I, I think there's a there's a substantial component of uh, of workers that, that that are in that position, such as you know, I was making twenty five bucks an hour. Uh, uh, I take a fifteen dollar an hour job. I can do better. Uh, yeah, yeah. But they can't. They don't realize. Yeah. So, but they're waiting, hoping, taking unemployment. Yeah. Which is not very generous, by the way. Um, um, no, and and obviously, and it you know, and it steps down over time. Um, so yeah, this was a. This is different from this particular period in that we did have the construction boom. Um, yeah, we have all those houses sitting in Nevada now that you know maybe they'll get populated at some point. Um, you know who, who knows, but that did provide but, employment opportunities for a lot of people and, that were relatively low skilled. And new housing construction is not bouncing back because of that big overhang of both unfilled houses and houses that are being foreclosed on. No, exactly. That's exactly right. So let's get to the cause of this malaise. Um, as you started to say, there, there are two uh, sort of stylized explanations for why this recovery is so mediocre. Um, one is that, go ahead. Yeah, so one is that there's a lot of uncertainty about economic policy. Um, and that's holding back businesses from investing and from hiring workers. And that's an interesting theory um, from the standpoint that um, from economics, any activity where there's a large fixed cost associated with the decisions, and there's certainly big fixed costs associated with building a new factory or office building, and there are fixed costs associated with hiring a worker. You know, you've got to train them, you've got to bring them on board, you've got to integrate them in the organization. Those, those are those. Have, both of those decisions have big fixed costs. So fixed meaning, if you hire them for six weeks, six years, there's still a big upfront. You've still got to pay that upfront cost. Exactly, you still got to pay that upfront cost. And you know, so recent theoretical work in economics has emphasized how uncertainty about the future leads those decision makers that face those upfront costs to delay their decisions until there's a little bit more clarity. So that theory says. You know what? We've got this dysfunctional Congress, and we don't know if there's going to be um, if there's going to be a, uh, taxes are going to go up next year to the extent that they are prescribed to, or if there's going to be a deal in Congress. We don't know who's going to be in the White House. Um, Republicans and Democrats can't seem to make any decisions. Who knows what's going to be looking like in terms we of have, 2000? We have large sectors of the economy under new regulation where the legislation isn't even completed. That would be health care and the financial sector. Sure, Dodd-Frank is, is far from done. Um, right, there's not Obamacare. Not yeah. Even, yeah, some parts, <laughs> some not, parts haven't, even been, yeah. haven't even been touched. Yeah. Um, it's a remarkably complex uh, piece of legislation. So, so I'm, I'm sympathetic to that argument, but I think there's some problems with it. We'll talk about it in a sec. First, let's get to the second claim. The, the, second, um, the, se- the, the second is more ominous, we, and we talked about that a bit before, which is the U.S. is not as vibrant of a long-run economy as it was in the 80s and the 90s, and that low investment rates reflect... 
You know, low investment rates are um, oftentimes um, a very good predictor of future economic activity because investment is done with the anticipation of what it will yield in the future. And again, kind of going back to the analogy with the Great Depression, massive collapse. There's a 90% drop in investment in you know between 30 and on you know, 32 or 33. It didn't come back really much at all in those recovery years. And you know, my sense is that it didn't come back because businesses looked to the future and said, the long run is not looking very good for this economy. I worry that some of that may be playing a role again today, and the data that leads me to think that might be somewhat of the explanation is that you know, the expansion years between the 01, between the 2000, yeah. 2001 recession and before, yeah. the Great Recession, those were not particularly good years compared to the 90s or the 80s. So we seem to have a more sclerotic economy. Um, but that's, that's, yes, that's, that's, so the first explanation is bad policies or blundering by, by policymakers. The second is there's some structural problems we need to deal with. But there's a third explanation, which I thought was going to be your second, which is we're coming out of, what's unique about this crisis and recovery is that it was driven possibly, this is not even clear either, but it some would argue it's been driven by a financial crisis, that the banking sector, the shadow banking sector's collapse is is why this has been such a mediocre recovery, and that that's generally what happens after these kind of uh, situations. The Great Depression being an example, we had a terrible collapse in the banking sector in the 30s, says the argument, uh, lots of bank failures, uh, lots of difficulty getting financial help, and that meant that the recovery is not going to be very good. And people made the same argument for this particular recovery. So uh, among those three, bad policy, structural problems, and a financial crisis, where do you fall and what do you think is the most important? Yeah, I put stock on um, sort of bad policy slash policy uncertainty as we go forward. Um, you know, certainly when you look at um, the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act, which is more popularly known as the stimulus plan, um, it's hard to make the case that it did very much, and, unless your vision of the world was going to be 15% unemployment or 18% unemployment. Uh, you look at cash for clunkers, it seems like it just stole auto sales from the future. You look at the home buyer's tax credit, it didn't it do much to help the housing market. But those were all incredibly incredibly expensive policies that helped us rack up a lot of debt. Um, so you think about bad policies, yes, I think that played a major role in why we haven't had too much recovery. Um, I don't subscribe too much to the financial, to the slow recovery because of the financial crisis view, and that makes, that makes me quite different than a lot of economists. But yeah, Why not? You have yeah, some interesting it's, evidence. It's, it's tough. Obviously, we're in what Jim Mansey calls a high causal density. I mean, there's a lot of things going on at once, and there's a temptation to cherry pick the <clears throat> causes you like and to discount the causes yeah. you don't like. But you do provide some evidence to, for the financial sector not being as important as some people claim. What, what's your argument right, there? Right, right. Well, you know, so many people now cite we have a delayed recovery because we had a financial crisis, and they'll point to work by Ken Rogoff and Carmen Reinhardt. Right, um, who we interviewed uh, uh, Carmen on this program. Okay, okay, terrific. Um, so, but this, the, the, US, the U.S. doesn't look like those crises, um, and here's why I say that. Um, 
So I'm doing work now with a former PhD student of mine, uh, Zhang Ho, who's now at the International Monetary Fund, and Ellen McGratton at the Minneapolis Fed. And uh, we're looking at a number of recoveries following financial crises. And yes, GDP recovery is delayed, but it's not because of employment. Employment comes back. What doesn't come back is productivity. So we can always just arithmetically decompose changes in output identically into two pieces, output, output, per, output per worker and the change in number of workers. I mean, that's, that, that's an identity. And in a lot of the Reinhard Rogoff episodes, uh, at least the ones we're looking at, they're fairly recent ones, they're not ones that go back you know, into the you know, early 1900s to the 1800s, the delayed recovery is because of productivity, it's not because of employment. We're the exact opposite. Right. We're not having a, we're not having a delayed recovery in productivity. You know, worker productivity is higher than it's ever been by by a substantial margin. We're having a delayed recovery because the labor market's not coming back. Um, so that's one reason. Um, you know, my view is that that's not that's not really the explanation of what's going on here. And then the other reason is you know we talked about before the corporate sector is largely self financing. They got tons of cash. They have tons of cash. So they don't need the finance. It's not like they can't. Their, their local bankers gone, so they can't finance their new plant or yeah. their new activities. You're saying they don't need their local banker like they used to. They don't need their local banker like they used to. Um, they're not up against. They're not up against some borrowing constraint where these where they're saying, "If only I could get a bank loan to undertake this great project over here." But aren't there people who say that the commercial paper market collapsed? That you couldn't get short term loans? That banks couldn't weren't couldn't that firms couldn't get liquidity? In the aftermath of the crisis, the crisis, you know, we're talking about the 08, 09 period that that uh, the money market was was about to was in shambles. Um, the government had to step in. There, there's a lot of seems to be some evidence, at least, that, that sure. there were some financial challenges. There were tremendous dislocations the fall of 08, and um, yeah, and I don't I don't downplay those dislocations on the economy at that time. And my own sense is some of the some government handling. Of the crisis could have been done better. Um, now they were operating in real time, and are you sure? <laughs> <laughs> so, so that was you know it's a difficult is a difficult situation. But um, what you see after this crisis is um, you know some interest rates shot up like crazy right. in the fall of '08. They came down pretty quickly in the spring of '09. Now we're almost three and a half years past the spring of '09. True. Um, a lot of the markets that kind of dried up um, again. We, we mentioned earlier. T- about the difficulties in inferring cause and effect, the Fed stepped in substantially and basically you know, took over activity in some of those markets. Um, yes, they did. So when you look at bank lending today, it's lower today than it was at the height of the financial crisis. Um, you know, financial Why? Pr- so, so again, my sense is that um, there's just not a lot of demand for loans out there. Right. Well, I agree with that because then the question is why. We don't yeah. really know. But so then we go back. Yeah, we go back to those. Because things are bad. Why are they bad? Because yeah. Yeah, we uh, go back to those explanations about is it uncertain policy? Is it? Um, well, let's talk about uncertain policy. Yeah. I, I'm sympathetic to that, but as as many people wisely point out on the other side, there's always uncertainty. You know, how, what, what, first of all, tax policy. Tax policy is changing all the time. Uh, it, it's not a secret that. We're spending more than we take in. It's true. We've spent a lot more than we take in, but I, I think there's not that much uncertainty. Their tax rates are going to have to go up. Some some aspects of taxes are yeah. going to increase because you can't run a trillion dollar deficit every single year, and either we're going to 
uh, spend less or tax more, but eventually yep. we're going to have to tax some more to because I don't think we're going to be very good at spending less. So how, how do you and, and I'll let's talk about the Great Depression as well because you've made the claim and we've had uh, Bob Higgs on who I whose work I respect talking about the policy uncertainty sure. discouraging investment and future looking. So it sounds nice, but you know, hey, it's always uncertain the policy environment. Why? Other than the fact that it it, it coincides with our view of government not being a very uh, effective steer of the economy. How do we know this is really discouraging things? Yeah, yeah, no, all those are good points. Uh, what I would say is unique about this particular episode is that, you know, we haven't had a 70% publicly held debt to GDP ratio before, which really highlights the importance of fiscal imbalances. Um, politicians in the past, um, you know, whether Republican or Democrat or anything else, we're able to successfully kick the can forward on a lot of entitlement issues. Yeah. Um, that, I mean, we're, that, that we're getting close to the wall where you can't kick it any further down. So the road. now, yeah, yeah. So now we're close to the wall, and so now voters are finally saying, "Oh, now I see." And of course, there's really nothing. There's nothing new about a lot of these issues. Right. Unfunded pension liabilities, particularly in the government sector, yeah. this has been around forever. Yeah. You know, forever meaning you know thirty years. Yeah. Um, so there are some some novel features of today's economy, including a Congress that can't seem to work together at all, um, uh, including a big new health care program that we've never really had before um, in the sense of what that means for the future and how that's going to impact businesses. Businesses are going to say, "Okay, am I going to offer it? Or am I going to pay the tax? Um, is it going to, you know, is it is you know?" I, the businesses I talk to still are pretty uncertain about how it's going to impact them. Um, we mentioned Dodd Frank a couple of minutes ago, which is a behemoth, um, one that I'm not particularly positively disposed towards. Um, we still, in my opinion, still have too big to fail. Is oh, yeah. in my opinion, sort of cemented in by Dodd Frank. Well, that's the biggest problem, um, I think. So I do think there's some features of today's economy that do raise more uncertainty than in, than in the past. And at some level, it's really hard to distinguish between our businesses holding back on investing in plant and equipment and hiring workers because they're uncertain about what's going to come next year or whether they just don't think no matter who's in the White House or who's in Congress, we're not going to have nearly as good of an economy as we had, say, in the 80s and 90s. It's really hard to distinguish between yeah, well, those two hypotheses. Yeah, that's a great point. That's a great point. I, I think they tend to get lumped together. It could be uh, the people are uncertain about the future. It could just be they think it's a bad future, <laughs> It could <laughs> unfortunately. Be, it, that, that, that's, that's what I'm worried about. Uh-huh. Um, and and really, worried, really worried from the standpoint of, you know, young, we talked about labor argument a minute ago, Really young workers um, yeah. and uh, and workers that that aren't competitive in today's job market, you know, given their limited education completion. Yeah, well, certainly a long run uh, challenge. I mean, our education system it, it doesn't need a reform. It needs to be um, maybe a, a do over, something else. Yeah, a reform uh, is. Um, Misleading, as if there's a switch. We just have to flick the right switch. I, th- I think there's we some need, modest changes to be made. Right. I think we need some radical restructuring. And um, you know, we've talked um, talked on this program about the STEM phenomena. I think it was Alex Tabarrok, um, you know, the science, technology, engineering, and math. And that's always going to be a smallish portion of 
of college graduates yeah. and saying, well, we just need more STEM graduates so they can be part of the modern economy um, is not the right answer. And I also had an interesting conversation with Adam Davidson from Planet Money about some of the revolution going on in manufacturing where it's actually there's a lot of high-skilled work being done in manufacturing with requires calculus and and, Absolutely, uh, yeah. Uh, it's fascinating, that revolution as well. It's, un, it's unseen. I don't think most of us are paying that much attention to it. But um, we need. it would be nice if there were more creativity in the education sector to allow people to find ways to get skills they could be productive with. Let's, um, I, I want to say one, I want to ask you a little bit more about the Great Depression. Sure. You've written some yeah. very interesting things about that. Then we're going to turn to the last part of this on on the housing market. Um, it's always, let me say it differently. There's no, we don't measure uncertainty. <laughs> it's not like, oh, it went from 6.3 to 7.7. 7. Yeah. That explains it. So I, I'm sympathetic to the argument that healthcare and other transformations here have created more uncertainty. and maybe worse, created a bad perception of a bad future. I think the other side would argue, people who favor that would argue, you know, it's, 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 it's improved our healthcare situation and that's a crucial part of productivity. So I think, you know, I think there are arguments on the other side, but let's move to the Great Depression. Uh, and the standard Keynesian view is, well, we just had a loss in aggregate demand and until the war came and, and government spent like crazy, uh, we didn't recover. You tell a very, very different story that yeah. must cause you to be very unwelcome at a lot of cocktail parties. So I, Lay out a little bit of that case for why the policy uh, environment of the Great Depression uh, extended it, and it was not the aggregate demand problem that that many people argue. Sure, sure. Um, I mean, the Great Depression is fascinating. It's it's unprecedented in duration. Um, It's unprecedented in depth. People talk about today's dire economic situation. Nothing nothing. close. Um, You're talking about unemployment rates of... uh, you know, twenty percent, twenty-five um, investment that was ninety percent below trend level. Yeah. Um, I mean, just remarkable, remarkable times. Um, in fact, the reason—I mean, the reason I study economics is because my my dad grew up during the Great Depression. So, I, I, whenever my grandparents were over at the house, I mean, that's all I heard. This was, <laughs> you know, in the nineteen sixties, nineteen seventies. I heard people, you know, adults still talking about what happened, you know, thirty thirty yeah. years, well, that's why thirty my dad years before. Doesn't invest in the stock market. Because it's dangerous. They yeah. invest in junk bonds, which are dangerous. But to him, it's not the stock market. My, my dad must have talked to your dad because yeah. he never invested in the stock market. You know, T bills were great. Yeah. Oh. Um, so, so you know, kind of any theory of the Great Depression has to say why didn't it happen before and why didn't it happen afterwards, and why did it take you know ten years to get anywhere back close to trend? So, something must have been fundamentally different. And um, I think a lot of data uh, had not been explored very systematically, at least from the standpoint of kind of you know kind of standard economics. A lot of, in fact, when I first went to teach at Minnesota, University of Minnesota, um, you know, kind of Ed Prescott was a colleague of mine there. You know, he would win the Nobel Prize a few years after that. And I would say, Ed, what do we know about the Great Depression? He would say, We know nothing. We need a whole different economic theory to understand the Great Depression. And uh, I'd wanted to do a dissertation on the Great Depression when I was in grad school at Rochester. And um, my professor at the time, Bob King, you probably know the Bob King, sure. Alan Stockman, yeah. said, oh, no, don't do that. Don't, don't <laughs> even think about doing that. We, th- we think you can do okay, smart guy, but, 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 but don't, don't do that. Don't go there. No Ph.D. student should write about the Great Depression. So 
You know, I got to Minnesota, I started you know, thinking about this, and my colleague Hal Cole was the Minneapolis Fed, and, and we started talking about it. And we said, okay, well, let's see what we can learn about it. Um, and what was really unique is there was sort of an unprecedented level of uh, what we call cartelization policies or non-market policies that basically you know, shut off competition. So, I mean, you and I know the beauty of a market economy is that um, when market forces work correctly, prices signal allocation of resources and uh, demand and supply come together um, so that there's no shortages or no excesses. Um, and th- with the most part, the U.S. economy looks not too far from that sort of free market vision for a lot of its history. Obviously, markets don't work perfectly. There's sometimes we have shortages, sometimes we have excesses, but there's a ton of evidence that market economies and a lot of, not all markets, but a lot of markets, you know, work pretty well to achieve that vision. In the U.S., it's just blaring, to me, glaringly obvious that that's not happening. You've got enormously high unemployment for, for, so, for so long. And you've got, you know, these are people who want to work and they can't get jobs. So what's different about the 1930s? Well, wages are incredibly high. So real wages throughout the 1930s are above their normal levels and far above underlying productivity. So imagine, you know, so when I try to explain this to people without a background in economics, I say, Imagine you're a worker, you're knocking on the door, and you're saying, hey, I look like that guy in there doing that job. He's I'm got- willing to work for half of what he's working. Now, so why don't those, economics is all about, why don't those mutually advantageous trades take place? And the, you know, the, that's a challenge to the Keynesian view, which says wages can't come down. They're, they're, for some reason, they're sticky. You're saying they're not sticky. The guy comes no, no. in and says, they look sticky, but they really aren't. There's something impeding that trade, and there's a bunch of evidence that says, no, wages aren't sticky from, from the perspective of kind of old-time Keynesian theorizing. There's a great paper in the Journal of Economic History by um, a professor named um, Curtis Simon at Duke. And you know, back in the day, the New York Times used to post um, situation wanted ads. So people would, would take out an ad in the New York Times and say, I'm, the, you know, I'm a, a male worker, and this is my experience, and I'm looking for this type of situation. And is that, that a help wanted, job wanted? Job wanted, yeah, yeah, situation wanted. So before the Depression, the asking price of somebody saying, I'm looking for a job, here's what it will take to get me, the asking price and actual wages will basically move within a few percentage points of each other. During the Depression, that was off by a factor of 30%. Thirty percent, never before. So you have so to. So thirty percent meaning that people, the uh, people are willing to work for thirty percent less than the wages being paid. So again, we say, you know, why aren't those trades taking place? Well, something almost by definition is preventing wages from falling. And you know, a lot of my research is focused on the policies of um, you know President Hoover and also particularly President Roosevelt in adopting policies that prevented wages. From falling, so Hoover had a meeting in um, you know right after the stock market crash on October 29, where he went to the you know he said you know Henry Ford was there, Pierre Dupont, Alfred Sloan of GM, U.S. Steel was there, um, uh, Dow Chemical, and for and uh, Hoover said, look, your profits have been record highs. I don't want this recession born on the backs of workers. So you don't cut wages, and in particular, if you can raise them, that would be great. 
and in return, so we can keep purchasing power highs. Keep per, yeah, it was this old-fashioned idea of keeping keeping purchasing power high. You know, if the workers have high wages, they'll go out and spend it. Um, there's sort of similar themes to yes, some of the economic advice coming today. And Hoover said, if you do this, I will keep unions off your back. He said, now remember, times have changed. The ways you used to prevent unions from forming, you can't do that stuff anymore. You know, you can't beat them up. You can't beat them up or show them a gun and chase them off the property. That 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 world doesn't exist anymore. And you know, GM, U.S. Steel, Bethlehem, Dupont, yeah, they kept wages up. Um, Henry Ford actually did a modest wage increase. He hadn't raised wages in a number of years. Um, so now, as you start having some deflation. Those fixed nominal wages are starting to become very expensive to employers. Um, so the work I've done suggests that about you know sixty percent of the decline of output and work and employment in the Great Depression can be accounted for by this Hoover high wage policy. And what's really interesting is the farm sector, which was about twenty five percent of employment at that time, manufacturing was about twenty five percent as well. Farm sector wasn't hit by these kind of cartelization policies or wage fixing anti-competitive policies. Wages fell in the farm sector by a ton. Well, not by a ton, but they fell twenty or thirty percent. Real output in the farm sector and employment was basically unchanged during the depression. So you have one major sector of the economy impacted by these non-competitive policies, not allowing the labor market to clear, and you have a huge drop in employment, a huge drop in output. You have another major sector of the economy. Where well, the labor market could clear, employment says normal level, output says normal level. Well, you mentioned Hoover, and that that example is what uh, sometimes is called jawboning. It's not legislation. It's just it's a encouragement with some yeah. coercion behind it, yeah. or promised coercion. Uh, what did Roosevelt do that was along those lines? He, um, I mean, he basically doubled down on that policy. So Roosevelt uh, put forward um, something called the National Industrial Recovery Act. Um, which would, yeah, the NIRA, which, um, you know, to, from the standpoint of today's economics, would be incomprehensible. It basically said, Roosevelt said to industry, most of the economy, we're going to let you collude and cartelize. So GM, Ford, Chrysler, you guys get together. We want you. We want you to set minimum prices, and we don't want you to sell below those prices. It's okay with us if you put quotas on new investment in plant and equipment. Or quotas on output. We want you to do that. We will. What about the Sherman and Clayton Antitrust Acts that prevent this kind of activity? We're going to put those Sus- aside. Suspend them. We're going to suspend those. We'll let you do this as long as you immediately raise wages and engage in collective bargaining. So it was wide-scale monopolization of U.S. industry on the product market side, and a huge increase in the relative price of labor. So when we come out of the, and this, this was put in place in June of 30, um, I think it started, took place in June of 33. When you look at the recovery, um, a lot of people will point to, uh, including Christina Romer, um, uh, who's a, you know, terrific economic historian at Berkeley and served on Obama's, um, CEA. People will point to, you know, very rapid growth rates in output and say, well, look at that recovery. Right. All 80% of that growth was coming from productivity. You know, jobs weren't coming back. Um, so what Cole and I did was we measured, uh, you know, hours worked per adult population during the recovery period. It wasn't all that much different than the recession. It's just that productivity came back in the 30s. Um, and, you know, we tie that to FDR's poli- cartel policies. 
towards the end of the 30s, to FDR's credit, he gave, a, he gave this great speech where he said, our economy has become like a, con- a concealed cartel system like in Europe. What he did at that point was he doubled the size of the DOJ, their antitrust enforcement unit. Department of Justice. Department of Justice. They started going after um, cartels, and labor uh, wages started to fall in a relative sense because during World War II, you know, people point to you know, all this government spending during World War II really stimulated the economy. Well, labor policy changed a lot. So... Um, FDR met with unions, and he said, I want to make sure there's no strikes. And unions said, as long as we can collectively bargain, there won't be any strikes. He said, great. Well, and I think it was 19, either 42 or 43, uh, Bethel M. Steel agreed to a large increase in wages with the Steelworkers Union. Um, that wage agreement was struck down by the National War Labor Board. The National War Labor Board was put into place to essentially screen and ratify any kind of wage agreements large-scale wage agreements, and then where Labor Board said, nope, this is inflationary, uh, we're going to limit this wage increase to cost of living. The unions were really upset and went to FDR and said, what are you going to do about this? You said we could collectively bargain. He said, well, yeah, you can collectively bargain, but this is an independent board, I, this, is outside, this is outside, I can't get involved in this. And wages relative to productivity, which from the standpoint of the work that Cole and I did is kind of the key factor in determining how screwed up this, these policies are. Those wage relative productivity was almost back to its 1929 level uh, by, say, 1946, 1947. And then you come out of the war, and Taft-Hartley substantially changes the Wagner Act, which in 1935 had given workers and unions enormous bargaining power. So it's, I mean, it's, a fast, it's a fascinating period. In fact, Cole and I are actually in the process of putting together a book about the U.S. economy from the 1920s through, the, through World War II with a focus on these kinds of policies. Well, look forward to talking to you about that when it comes out. Um, so how do you understand, let's come back to, let's come full circle. You argue then that in the 30s, there were productive exchanges between workers and employers that could have taken place if there hadn't yeah. been some artificial barriers. Yeah. Do you see those barriers in place today? Why aren't wage rates falling to clear the U.S. labor market? Um, so, great question. Um, I think part of it is, uh, you know, there's some workers... Um, there's some compositional effects where a lot of the workers that are being that are not finding jobs are relatively low skilled, and those that are retaining jobs are high skilled. So it looks like compensation rates are not coming down that much, but it might part of that might be compositional. There's a lot of um, well, at least there's some policies in place now that are changing incentives for job finding. So, so let's let's talk about that because yeah, that brings okay. us to, the, to okay. the last thing I want to talk about. We're, we're over time. I okay. have, can you still have time to continue? Uh, yeah, I can. I can go, go for a little this. bit yeah. longer. Yeah. Um, you've written a very provocative, interesting paper on how the housing market has encouraged people to stay unemployed. So talk about that. So possibly anyway. Yeah. So I've, yeah. So, so I've I've written a couple of papers about, um, and, and they're purely positive papers rather than sort of you know welfare based papers. Uh, Meaning about, the way the world works, not how you like it or should. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So these are purely papers about how incentives for job finding and job acceptance decisions have changed because of policies. And my most recent work on this is uh, relates to um, foreclosure delay. 
So today, median time to foreclose on a home is around 15 months. So once you enter the foreclosure process, you know, the average person will get foreclosed on, median person in about 15 months. Long yeah. time. A long time. In the early 2000s, that was probably closer to two or three months. So you get an extra year to so live in the a, house. Yeah. And the real simple idea is, um, you, you know, if you're living in a house and you've stopped making payments and you're reasonably certain that you have a long time to stay in the home and continue not making payments, the incentives to engage in job search and when an offer is, re- when a job offer is received, you know, a person's reservation wage or a wage that they're willing to accept work or decline it is very different than if you think the sheriff's going to become knocking on the door within the next month and saying, okay, you and your family are out. The incentives are very, Why? very... So on the one case, um, uh, you, you, if you know you can stay in your home a year or two years without making any house payments whatsoever, which is a big chunk of most people's family income... Um, then the marginal value, the marginal value of the dollar is very different than if you have to pony up maybe 50% of your employment benefits to stay in, to stay in the home. Um, and, you know, essentially living free is, uh, so if you're thinking about engaging in job search, you say, okay, here's an offer. Well, this offer's not that great. Should I take it? Well, you know, I've got this free living situation, so no, I'm not really in that bad of a, that bad of a situation yet. It's very different. You say, I'm in the process of foreclosure. I know the sheriff's going to knock on the door within the next month. I better take this job. It's above unemployment because benefits. Because a month from now, I'm going to have to be making a, a payment for rent. Or, or uh, either rent. I have to get current on my uh, I have to get current on my mortgage, or I'm going to be booted out, and I've got to make a rental payment. Exactly. So let's say your uh, your mortgage payment. I don't know what the median mortgage payment is in the United States. Not that it's relevant. I really want to know the median mortgage. It's about $700. I really want to know what the median mortgage payment is in Nevada or these high Michigan or high unemployment states. But uh, let's say it's it's $700. So you're saying I've got uh, an implicit welfare payment I'm receiving of of, $8,000, of a cushion I can fall back on because yep. I don't I'm living rent free. Yep. More uh payment. That's free. exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. And this is um yeah, so this this is a paper purely about how it changes the incentives. Um but in all on the worker of, side. Right. All so. on the worker side, yeah. All on the worker side. Right. Uh it's all yeah, it's all about unemployed um essentially unemployed individuals who are who who hold mortgages. And there's about six million people um in the in the recent economy who are unemployed and have mortgages, um, I mean, record high by, by, by a large margin. So it's a little, um, it's, it's a clever argument. And as a person who believes deeply in the power of incentives, it's, the direction's correct. But so let, let, let's, let's look at the, at the uh, skeptical side of this. So I've been unemployed for two or three years, and I've been hanging on with my house, and all of a sudden I realize I can't make my house payment yeah. anymore. And, um, but if I've been talking to my neighbors or been looking in the Wall Street Journal, I know that I've got a good year or so before they're going to throw me out. And I think now I don't really have to find a job because I can live rent free for another year and be unemployed now for three years. There are a lot of other factors that are going to dwarf that my self respect, what my spouse thinks of me, what, how I can hold up my head with my neighbors. Yeah. You're, you're arguing that. That for eight thousand bucks, I'm going to turn down this good job. I'll get another one in a year. In a year from now, I'll look. You know, I, 
I'm scared about the future. I get sure. a job offer. I'm not going to take it. Sure. Um, so what, what besides we, the argument that it's possibly true, what's the evidence that it actually is yeah, true? Yeah. So we have. Um, so what's pretty striking is that we have evidence from the panel study of income dynamics, the current population survey, um, that shows unemployment rates and also employment rates among individuals at different stages of delinquency. So, thirty days late. 60 days late, 90 days late, and into foreclosure. And what we see is that uh, job acceptance decisions are very different once the foreclosure process starts than, say, 90 days late or 60 days late. Mm-hmm. Um, so it does appear that once, uh, once people are thinking that the sheriff's going to knock on the door, uh, job finding goes up. Um, so that's some evidence in favor of it. So a, guess, parallel, a parallel argument then is that the extension of unemployment benefits has been a major factor. Yeah, and yeah. So, yeah. So a overall, lot of people find that hard to believe. Um, I mean, again, this is sort of basic incentives. So the is, you know, so the evidence we point to is that PSID and CPS data about job finding once foreclosure starts. Um, we're also seeing it somewhat in this. Um, yes, yeah, so we have those two sources of data. And the other thing is, um, you know, we're not saying this is the major reason why unemployment is eight percent instead of four percent. We're finding this to be, you know, about at one half percentage point of unemployment, which is significant, but um, you know, leaves a not lot of room pro- for other factors. It's not factors. the problem. It's, it's not the, the problem, yeah. but it's part of the problem. Yeah. Uh, okay, we're, we're we're over time. Uh, let's close by uh, talking about the future. Um, I've heard. I've got a feeling what you what you might say, but optimistic, pessimistic going forward. Yeah. You know, doesn't look so good, but you mean cheerful news for me? <laughs> um, I mean, I always well, this is still the place to be. Um, no, no matter how bad things look here, Europe is a lot worse. It's true. Um, one reason maybe why we were so strong in the eighties and nineties is because we didn't face a lot of competition. Um, you know, we didn't have China developing the way it was. We didn't have you know Latin America was a basket case in the nineteen eighties. We are facing more competition now. Um, I mean, the U.S. economy has always been, you know, there's, there's no country or economy more resilient than the U.S. So I'm always optimistic about the United States. Um, but my optimism would be stronger if, if, uh, I saw Washington doing some more sensible things. And, and, you know, hope springs eternal. Hopefully, hopefully Washington will do some more sensible things in the no, coming years. No way of knowing. <laughs> my guest today has been Leo Haney and Lee. Thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Thanks, Russ. I, I enjoyed it. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.